0: This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extensions Wildcat District with your extension crop report. Pretty soon, our winter wheat and alfalfa is going to break dormancy, and when it does, the crop pests that feed on those crops can become an issue. It's just about time to start scouting for these early spring pests. In both winter wheat and alfalfa, army cutworms can likely be seen on feeding on foliage. Army cutworms do not mind the cold and overwinter as full-size adult worms. The eggs from the moth are already laid and hatched last fall, so any field with army cutworms last fall will still have them. Anytime the temperatures get above 55 degrees, which has happened a lot this winter, the worms will emerge from the soil and start feeding. Currently, it doesn't hurt the crop much because the wheat and alfalfa are dormant, so some loss of foliage won't affect the crop. However, once the wheat and alfalfa break dormancy, generally most days are above 55 degrees so the army cutworms are able to feed continuously. Later on in the spring, when the worms have grown through their five instars, they will pupate in the soil. After a few weeks, these moths will emerge and travel westward to spend the summer somewhere cooler. One method of looking for armyworms is bigger birds like crows can often be seen this time of year in the wheat fields, and it's the army cutworms that they're after. Don't be fooled by Canadian geese though, they are likely eating the wheat itself, but not enough to do any damage. The reason why they are called army worms is because they can outbreak in some years, with populations so high that they exhaust their local food supply, and then they will begin to move in mass across an area. However, it is pretty rare that they will get to such numbers in this area. Management thresholds for army cutworms and wheat depends on how well the wheat is doing. Thin stands of late-planted wheat have a threshold of 2-3 worms per square foot thicker stands are closer to 4 to 5 per square foot before it's economical to spray. Later in the season, shortly before jointing, there might still be cutworms in the wheat, but it takes much more of them to be an issue. Mostly the problem of army cutworms occur early in the season by keeping the wheat and alfalfa from taking off. Another pest in alfalfa is the alfalfa weevil, which will soon start to lay eggs again. This pest is more traditional in its life cycle. It lays eggs in the late fall or early spring, and the weevil eggs will continue to develop any day that it gets above 45 degrees. So mild winters mean earlier weevils, and it will continue to feed until it gets hot in the summer. Alfalfa weevil larvae are fairly small and green to light brown, with one dark brown stripe down their back. The weevil larvae can be found hiding and feeding in the alfalfa whorls during frosty mornings in mid to late March. Wheat will have another pest this time of year as well, the winter grain mite. It also tends to be more problematic in dry years like this one. The mite does fine in cold weather, but it can be washed out by a hard rain. Generally, this pest is unlikely to be much of a problem. Although it has been a dry, we've had a few rains before the snow to wash the mites and keep the wheat hydrated. No matter what pest you are finding out there, bring it into an extension office if you would like it identified. A good picture on your phone might work too give me a call at 620-724-8233. This has been James Cooper with your Extension Crop Report. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District.
1: Hi, this is Wendy Powell, your Livestock Production Agent with the Wildcat Extension District. Winter supplementation often focuses heavily on meeting protein and energy requirements and tends to leave mineral nutrition as an afterthought. Missing the mark in any nutrient category, including vitamins or minerals, can have negative effects. All nutrients interact, so deficiencies in one element can create inadequacies of other nutrients, even if those nutrients are supplied in the correct amount. During winter months, locally grown forages are typically the basis of cattle diets. The mineral content in the forage is based on the mineral content of the soils they're grown on, which can be highly variable because of the soil formation process from one region to another. Mineral composition can even change from one pasture to the next. To complicate the matter further, the mineral content and availability are not the same thing. The digestibility of the forage impacts the availability of the mineral. High-quality grasses that have high digestibility will have, not surprisingly, greater mineral availability. Due to the annual change in weather conditions, mineral supplement strategies should be reviewed annually. Evaluate the mineral availability in forage, protein supplements, and water. Compare this amount to the requirement of your livestock to formulate an effective plan. The plan should fill any gaps of deficiencies to make sure all interactions can happen as needed. Interactions among minerals can be antagonistic, binding with each other and reducing animal availability. Sometimes, an excess of one element has to be fed to overcome this binding. Secondly, excess minerals can cause toxicity. It's critical that needless supplementation is avoided to keep down costs and toxicity concerns. Feed and water testing are needed to fine-tune a formulation. While this involves upfront effort and expense to sample and measure mineral content, it has the potential advantages of improved animal performance, reduced costs by overfeeding mineral, prevention of unfavorable interactions, and prevention of toxicity. Referring to forage mineral content, typically calcium levels are adequate and phosphorus levels tend to be deficient, especially in mature forages. So, phosphorus supplementation is usually necessary. Some basic guidelines for winter mineral supplementation programs are Always provide trace mineralized salt at a minimum. Supplement phosphorus when forage is dormant unless distiller's grain is being used as a protein source. Supplement copper if symptoms are present, but be sure to monitor copper status to ensure deficiency is solved without reaching toxic levels. Because commercial mineral and salt products are formulated to meet generalized conditions, it's helpful to create a custom blended formula to meet local deficiencies or toxicities of a specific ranch. For more information, give me a call at the Labette County Extension Office,
0: 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's Davin Scrantz, natural resource and diversified ag agent with her report.
2: This is a Dave Strauss, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. Cottontail rabbits are one of the most commonly observed animals in cities and rural areas and can be found throughout Kansas. They are light brown with a white belly. Long ears and a stubby powder puff tail are their distinguishing characteristics. Adult cottontail rabbits are 15 to 19 inches long and weigh two to four pounds. Cottontail rabbits produce three to four litters of young a year, beginning in late winter and continuing into early fall. Female cottontail rabbits will build a nest approximately the size of a softball, line it with fur, and nurse their young for two to three weeks before they leave the nest. Cottontail rabbits prefer brushy cover interspersed with open areas. Abundant growth during the spring and summer provides the rabbits with all the food and cover they need. In the winter, when food is limited, cottontail rabbits will eat twigs and gnaw the bark of woody plants. This is why young trees and seedlings need to be protected from rabbits during the winter months. Landscape yards provide excellent rabbit habitat, accounting for the prevalence of cottontails in most suburban and urban areas. Cottontail rabbits spend most of their lives in small areas of 10 acres or less. In good habitats where cottontail rabbits are firmly established, efforts to permanently reduce the rabbit population generally are not successful. Because once a number of rabbits are removed, cottontails from nearby areas move in. Signs that you may have cottontail rabbits in your yard are gnawing marks and twigs cut at an angle, clippings on the nearby ground, and round pea-sized droppings. To prevent rabbit damage to trees and plants in your yard, exclusion rabbit proof fences are a practical and inexpensive way to protect valuable plants. Rabbits can be excluded from small areas of vegetable and flower gardens, nurseries and ornamental plants by encircling these areas with 1 inch mesh galvanized wire that is 18 to 24 inches high. Permanent posts are not required, but the bottom edge of the wire must be staked to the ground or buried several inches deep to prevent rabbits from burrowing under the fence. Reusable fence panels may easily be constructed to protect a garden. These 18 to 24 inch high panels allow gardeners easy access yet exclude foraging rabbits. Small trees or seedlings can be protected with cylinder guards made from small mesh hardware wire. These rabbit guards should be 18 to 24 inches high or higher depending on the average snowfall. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District, this has been Adavin Strauss with your K-State Research and Extension report.
0: Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report.
3: With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. Spring is the time for the emergence of bulb flowers like daffodils, tulips, and crocuses. Based on landscape observations, daffodils appear to be the most popular spring bulb, but management on all of these species will be the same. Foliage should already have emerged by now, and most spring bulbs will have already flowered. These flowers will live for about three weeks and then begin to wilt, with the foliage wilting later in the growing season. Once the foliage wilts, it can be cut off at ground level, and the bulb will go dormant until next spring's growing season. All bulbs can live without leaves for a large portion of the year because of their modified stems, which swell to store water and nutrients to use in lean periods. While dead foliage will not harm the plant, cutting off and removing the dead foliage will keep your garden or yard tidy and reduce potential hosts for pathogens and bugs that could spread to other garden plants. Bulbs are just one type of modified stem, tubers are another, and also function as a storage organ. One garden tuber is arguably the easiest garden plant to grow: the daylily. Daylilies are a summer-flowering tuber of the genus Hemerocallis and are arguably the most bred plant in history. Over 30,000 cultivars have been registered with the American Daylily Society, and more continue to be registered every year. One species of daylily is also known as the ditch lily, Hemerocallis fulva. You will see these orange blooms along roadsides and in ditches in June and July. Yellow cultivars of the daylily, specifically Stella de Oro and many happy returns, are the most common cultivars commercially available because they bloom multiple times a year. However, all daylilies will tolerate any environmental condition that isn't standing water and seem to thrive on neglect. This is one garden plant that you almost have to try to kill. Not all garden bulbs are desirable. People have been calling about wild onions in their yard and are wondering what they can do to control them. Wild onions, or any related Allium species, can be identified based upon the scent of torn leaves. If it smells like onions, the wild bulbs are the issue. The problem people have with wild onions is that they grow exceptionally fast, outpacing the growth of nearby turf grass. This uneven growth becomes a nuisance for those desiring consistent looking yards, especially if their yard is a warm season grass that is not currently in its active growing period. You can try to spray with a broadleaf selective herbicide like 2,4-D or triclopyr, but a waxy coating on the leaves makes this control method largely ineffective. The best way to control these nuisance plants is to dig plants out of the ground if there are a few, or to consistently mow until your lawn enters its active growing period or the bulbs are starved of nutrients and water. Wild onions can be used in the same way as chives, in cooking, but the bulbs are much smaller than garden onions, so don't dig up the plants expecting a substantial meal. For more information on today's topic, contact your local Extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Once again, this has been Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's Hort Report.
0: Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.